But would you open up to Galatians chapter 2, as we've been going through the book of Galatians, as Paul is defending not just his own ministry as an apostle, but he's defending something even more important than his own ministry. He's fighting for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone can save men's souls and take them out of darkness and bring them into the light. That is what the book of Galatians is all about. Paul is defending the gospel. He's defending the truth. He's defending that message that Jesus Christ preached, that he died to pay for it and it was resurrected, which alone can save men's souls, which alone gives forgiveness of sins, which alone could put a man on a straight and narrow to live for the Lord through the narrow gate and get off the wide road that leads to destruction. And the message, not just today, but even 2,000 years ago, was always under attack. There's something within mankind that dislikes grace. It's amazing. There's something in mankind, the very thing he needs is grace, God's mercy and forgiveness. No one would deny that. And then when you offer it to him in Jesus, they deny it because there's no room for themselves. There's no room for us in grace. It's either Jesus or nothing. Uh, we sang it today. To die and live with Christ. That's actually the gospel message today. We will pick it up in chapter 2 in the 11th verse. I will comment on what we spoke about last week before we go on for tonight. Listen to the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> but when Cephas, <clears throat> that's the Apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in, live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Would you go to the book of Acts, please? I will be preaching out of Galatians, so you can keep your finger there. Go to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read three verses in the book of Acts, four maybe. When you get to the 15th verse, I will read verse 1. But some men came down from Judea 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Would you read verse 24 with me? This is the brother of Christ speaking. His half-brother James says this, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Can you say no instructions? Okay. Chapter 21, and we'll close with this. We'll read 17 to 20. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It's always enlightening, Father God, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we reflect on it, Father God. We begin to understand more clearly exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. We understand more clearly who he is as the Son of God. We understand that he is our Savior, he is our Redeemer, and only Christ and faith in Christ can make a man clean on the inside. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away every sin, every iniquity, every transgression, and remove the guilt and the shame that the stain of sin leaves behind. Father God, unless you breathe upon the text, it remains behind the veil. So we pray today, God, as we go through the book of Galatians, you will open up our minds to understand the scriptures. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. As we have been speaking about in this book, Paul has been defending something. For the first two chapters, we're coming to the end of the second chapter, he's defending both his own apostolic ministry as an apostle. He does, does this in various ways. And, but he's really defending the truth of the gospel. That's really what he's defending. But to defend the truth of the gospel, he had to defend himself because there were certain people who were saying that Paul really wasn't an apostle. He was a self-imposed apostle or an imposter, is what they were saying. So to attack Paul's message, they attack Paul. And we've been speaking about that over the last month. And if you want to get to somebody, if they have the truth, attack them personally. It's defamation. Politicians do it all the time. It's We see it all the time being revealed, but it happens in religion too, it happens in Christianity. If you, if you don't like the message, attack the messenger and distract them from really what counts here is being saved and going to heaven and, and get caught up in sorts of arguments and theories and fables and myths and words. And Paul says, do not get caught up in these things. Stick clear to the truth. Always explain and articulate the Christian message so that people can be saved. Don't major in the minus, but stick to the main points of the whole Bible and the whole crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Men need to be saved. Men need to be forgiven. This is the message 
that they were attacking. And all of us understand something that inside of us, innate, we know we need to be forgiven. But there's something in us that wants to work for that forgiveness. We like to think that we're in God's good favor because we do these certain things for God. Uh, it's religion at its worst because it deceives men into thinking they're right with God when all along they were not right with God. The only way you can be right with God is what God has done for us. And He has given us a free gift of salvation through Christ. This is a message worth fighting for, whether it's 2,000 years ago, uh, whether it's the Protestant Reformation, or whether we're fighting today against all sorts of bad teaching and false teaching. The message of the Gospel needs to be clear. It needs to be defended at all costs, because people love to try to work out their own salvation. We will look at that as we go into the text. Paul has done this in two different ways. Last week he did it with a meeting up in Jerusalem, 14 years earlier. He defends himself in that the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, the Apostle James accepted him. And they said, well, you know, Paul is right on with the Gospel. He is an Apostle, but he's an Apostle sent to the Gentiles. Peter is an Apostle sent to the Jews, and we'll leave it at that. But the message is the same. There was the right hand of fellowship was given. Paul was making his point. Paul has made his point. He's not an imposter. He's a real apostle with a real message that really saves. And the church of Jerusalem, the ecclesiastical authority, so to speak, gave him his right hand of fellowship, and that was the credentials, though he didn't need those credentials. God's were, God was his credential. But he wants to solidify the point that I am an apostle. And he goes to another historical situation. One that, when you look at it, will blow your mind. As it has mine. Paul is defending himself with the use of Peter's mistakes. Something Peter is used to, if you know the Apostle Peter. He's constantly putting his foot in his mouth and making mistakes and a little presumptuous, and, uh, but God loves him and praise God that God loves presumptuous people because we all unfortunately fall into a little presumption now and again. But we see something here of this showdown between Peter and Paul. But before we get into the showdown, before we get into this, we have to know the players that are going on here because there are four, five different groups of people represented. There's the Apostle Peter, there's the Apostle Paul, there's these false Jewish brethren that came down from Jerusalem, then there are the Galatians themselves, who the letter is written to, and then there is a group of people up in Antioch of Syria. And we need to know all the plays before we can reconstruct what's going on over here and we can digest it for our own souls and how it makes sense for us today and how we make this, how it becomes relevant for our personal life and faith in Jesus Christ. Understand something, everything you just read has everything to do with your life. If it didn't before, it does now. Everything that we just read has everything to do with you. And I say that to perk your ears up and to listen to what Paul is saying here, really what the Holy Spirit is saying. We read in the book of Acts that there were certain men from James. And it's important that we know who these men are. These men were under the false pretension 
that they came from James. As we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 24, James says, There were certain men that went out from us as though they were, had our authority, but they had no authority. They left, but they were not sent. And they would go out and they would trouble people. That's what they did. They were going to churches like Paul's churches, which is probably not much different than me and you today. Maybe a church of 30, 50, 100 people, but not much more than that. And we would get together to worship Jesus, and they would come marching in, and they would start saying, to be saved, faith in Christ is not good enough. You need to have circumcision. And you need to follow the Mosaic law. They were called Judaizers, as I've been sharing and defining over the weeks past. And these men had the audacity to walk in anywhere they wanted, unwelcome, unsent, and to tell people who already loved God, they already loved Christ, they, were, they turned from paganism, they turned from a pantheon of different gods, they turned away from superstition, they turned away from fornication, they turned away from drunkenness, they turned away from all their moral wrongs, they embraced Jesus Christ, they're living for Jesus Christ. Now these people have the audacity to come down and say, that's not good enough. You need to be circumcised. The bad thing about it that it sounds kind of silly to me and you today, but if you read the New Testament, they carried a lot of false authority. People followed them. This very church followed them, and we're going to find out in the next chapter next week. Even Peter got caught up in this religiosity. It's hard to believe. There's the Apostle Peter we have to get familiar with. Peter. The apostle who knew the truth. The apostle who preached the truth. The apostle who taught it. The apostle who was saved by faith in Christ. But yet, in this situation, he failed to live up to it. Unprecedented. That such a man of Peter's caliber and stature... As an apostle of Christ, he walked with the earthly Jesus. He saw the resurrected Jesus. This is 20 years possibly after the resurrection, and Peter is still falling short. How can it be? Certain people come up, Peter was eating with me and you, and then when certain Judaizers came from Jerusalem who said they came from James and Peter and the other authorities, he sort of left them. And started eating with the Jews and separated himself from the Gentiles. The very thing that Jesus Christ died to. He, the, Ephesians chapter 2 says that Jesus died and he took away the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now we're one person. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision, but we are a new creation in Christ. There's neither Jew nor there's Gentile. There's neither black nor they're white. There is neither intelligent or there is ignorant. Neither rich nor poor, neither male nor female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. We all have the common denominator that we're lost sinners without Christ's grace. It's an important lesson for us to know today. Then there's the Gentile believers at a place called Antioch. Most people don't realize this, but when Peter got up and became a hypocrite, 
There's something different about this church at Antioch that probably most Christians don't know. They were schooled very well. Because for 10 years, the Apostle Paul taught this church what the gospel was. For 10 years, Paul labored in this church and taught them the freedom they have in Jesus Christ. They taught, he taught them the power of the Holy Spirit. He taught them if you turn away from your pagan ways and embrace Jesus, all your sins would be forgiven. You would receive the Holy Spirit and you would live intuitively from the inside out for God. Because God will give you a new heart by nothing but faith and trust in what Jesus did for them. And they flocked to this message. Antioch was a, a metropolis in the ancient world. It was basically Gentile with some Jewish synagogues there. But on a whole, this was a Gentile, non-Jewish Christian church. And they were taught by the ex-Pharisee, Saul, who was now the Apostle Paul, they heard the best teaching, the best preaching, not Sunday after Sunday. They didn't have a meeting once a week. They met every day. Paul preached every day the gospel. And now they're looking at Peter and they're appalled at Peter's behavior. These Gentile believers in Antioch were no fools. They were schooled and educated in Christian doctrine. And they would not be swayed even by Peter's misbehavior. We should be so schooled, we should be so learned, that nobody, even if an angel from heaven, came and preached any other gospel, we would say anathema. Anathema! will have nothing to do with such a false, distorted gospel. This raises a lot of questions, which we will try to answer as we go through. Then there's the Apostle Paul, the staunch defender of the faith. He's not just that, he's the Apostle to the Gentiles. There's something you should know about Paul. He loved the Gentile churches. He loved the non-Jewish people. He had no prejudice in his heart whatsoever. More than once in his epistles, he says, I was a father to you. I nurtured you as a mother nurtures an infant child. I labored until Christ would be formed in you. He loved their manners. He loved their customs. He loved their idiosyncrasies. He loved their food. He loved the way they dressed. He loved them not because they were following Moses, because they were brothers in Christ. This is no ordinary church leader. This is a shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And then last of all is the church that we're reading about this letter of Paul to the Galatians. The Galatians, like I said, were a church. They were found in probably modern day southern Turkey. If you can picture that on your atlas in your mind, I'm sure you got the atlas memorized. And if you don't, you, you've done something wrong and you're not going to have it. So go home and memorize the Atlas. But somewhere around there, Paul preached. And he walked into a town, into a synagogue one day, and the last thing these pagans were going to hear is that a man died and rose again from the dead for their sins. And they believed. 
and they loved it and they flocked to it and their hearts were overwhelmed. They rejoiced, the Bible says. Their hearts were filled with the Holy Spirit. They started living and loving God because Paul preached to them. They were genuine Christians. But those people we read about in Acts 15, after Paul left, they came down with their letters saying, we're coming from James, and you know something, to really be saved, Paul only had half the equation. Believing in Jesus is good, but you still need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And these Gentiles weren't like the ones in Antioch who grew up under the preaching. They were young in the faith, and guess what? They started falling prey to it. This is all important because the future of this church is online. Do you not know that once heresy starts to fill the church, everything is on the line? That it's only a matter of time. That doesn't mean the church won't be filled. You start preaching heresy, there might be 10,000 people here tomorrow. But only one person might go to heaven. At all. Everything is on the line here. Make no mistake about it. This church that loved Jesus, they loved Paul. These false teachers came down, and to get a false message in, they attacked their leader. They attacked the founder. They said, Paul is not the man you think he is. Paul is an apostate. James has nothing to do with him. John has nothing to do with him. The elders in Jerusalem have nothing to do with him. He's a man who's running his own race. Don't listen to him. You need to be circumcised. He's speaking against Moses. He's speaking against Jerusalem. He's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against circumcision. You can't be saved without regulations. And again, man has a propensity for regulations. There's something about us that likes regulations even though we don't keep them. There's some kind of comfort in saying, well, I am, and you fill in the blank. But who really can keep them? The Bible says if you're going to work by the law, you've got to keep every one of the laws. You break one law, you broke them all. It doesn't work. You can be the nicest kind of world, but if you've got a secret little sin life going on, it doesn't work. It won't work. You can be very religious and a great sinner at the same time. Most of us understand that, who are saved. But what's as important as the key players, and I just named the five of them, please don't ask me to do it again, is what's at stake. What's at stake here is the fight of human history. And it's not between Paul and Peter. It's between Christ or Moses. It's between freedom in Jesus Christ and bondage and slavery following Moses. It's between being dead in sin or alive in Christ. It's between the old and the new covenant. It's between law and grace. It's between the desires of the flesh which equals sin or the fruit of the spirit which equals life. It's between the kingdom of God advancing or going backwards. It's about preserving the truth that others may live against dead religion that never fills men's hearts with hope or peace or self-control over their passions. That's what's at stake. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is fighting for. That's what we need to fight for. Let me explain. Paul is reiterating a story of something that happened years ago to make a point and drive it home. Judaism is over. 
Jesus Christ is the end of the Mosaic law. Once Christ came and died and suffered and rose again, all religious protocol that's found in 1600 years of Jewish history has come to a very sharp and abrupt end. Now, me and you can say that very easily because we know that to be true. But, if you were a Jew in Palestine 2,000 years ago, and your whole family were Jews for 2,000 years, living by the Mosaic Law for 1,600 years, and all of a sudden the Messiah comes, and you believe that Jesus is Messiah, it's not so easy to give up the old habits. Not easy. The whole nation was defined by Judaism. The nation was defined by circumcision. The nation was defined by the Ten Commandments. The nation was defined by the Temple. The nation was defined by the Jewish rites of, of uh, the Passover and the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbaths. They defined the nation. To give that all up was not an easy transition. So have a little mercy when you read this. You can understand why people believed in Jesus, but they were still zealous for the law. And I use this for many of us coming out of Catholicism. It took me years to throw those little figurines away. The little rubber things. I told you I shared this after about five years of being a Christian, four or five years, I threw one in the garbage in the morning. And I went about my life all day. And I went to bed at night. I couldn't go to sleep. Because I, th I thought Mary was in the garbage. <laughs> now, please understand something. I'm not saying that just to have a laugh. I'm trying to say it to make a point of how strong it was. I snuck out and went into the garbage and took the little figurine out. It was ingrained in me. It was part of our nature. That's all I knew. There were many nights I would come home drunk and hung over and I'd hold on to that little thing and say, God, help me. God heard me. He didn't see me holding that. He saw me crying to Him. But when God came and gave me Jesus and took the rattle away and He took the bib away and He took the, the little pacifier away, you know how it is when the child doesn't have the pacifier you're trying to break them? They don't want the blankie. And it, it's sort of like that. And I say that not in a joking way because we can all identify with that when we come out of a very strong orthodoxy. We were accustomed to that. These Jews were accustomed to the law of Moses. So when, Moses, when Paul started preaching Christ alone, you can understand their ears went up and they said, what's going on over here? My whole world is being disrupted. Oh, the whole heritage, my tradition, everything is being, it's being unraveled. Who am I? I say that so we have mercy on these Jews that were caught up with the law and we have mercy on people today that still don't know the full understanding of the gospel and still are holding on to things of the past and still holding on to maybe icons and other things that they just don't understand the true meaning of Jesus Christ. We need to be compassionate and merciful, kind, because we too were there at one time. But let me go on. Paul is reiterating that Judaism is basically over. He pulls no punches when it comes to defending the faith. Peter stands self-condemned. He has shown himself a hypocrite. And all the Gentile believers in Antioch, and the Gentile is just a non-Jew, these non-Jewish believers, they know it. 
Verse 1, the first verse implies it in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Not just by me. His actions condemned him in front of everybody. These believers know the gospel. He was condemned. For one moment you're eating with the Gentiles, then these certain religious people come from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, where's Peter? That might not mean much to you, but understand something about fellowship in the first century. Supper and getting together and fellowship over a meal meant I accept you as a human being. I accept everything about you. You are, you are part of the family. That's how the, the, in the Orient they did it. That was custom and manners. And in many parts of the world it's still a custom and a manner. To be welcomed into the house is to say I accept you. You're welcome here. You're part of the family. So when Peter was there on his own before these religious hypocrites came he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came he showed himself aloof. This is unprecedented. Don't miss this. Paul is driving a point home. Paul stood up in front of Peter, in front of everybody. He didn't take Peter to the back room and say, Peter, you're missing something here. He condemned him to his face in front of everybody. In the Greek, it means he was shamed in front of everybody. That's how serious his hypocrisy was. Because it leads people astray and gives them a false impression of what being saved is. Please understand something. These men that came down with their self-righteous attitudes of high and mighty. Peter out of fear. The word means timidity and pressure. That's what the word means. It says, out of fear. He caves under pressure. Means he was deliberating in his mind. Should I, should I continue to eat with the Gentiles and show them Christian charity? Or should I try to please the people from James? And under the pressure, he caves under timidity. And he turns his back on this whole Jewish sect, this whole Gentile sect. He turned his back. He showed himself aloof. What, he, what the Bible means is he turns his back on these people. And he followed the others that wanted nothing to do with them. This, please, Paul saw for what it was. It was a breach of the gospel of Christ. To miss it on this point, throw the book away. As Paul says, Christ died for nothing. I don't nullify the grace of God, Paul says. Because if a law could save you like circumcision, then Christ died needlessly. It was a waste of everybody's time and even Jesus' life. It's either Jesus or nothing. If you're saved by anything else than Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ died needlessly. For our sins. This Paul saw for what it was and went right to battle. In front of them all, he opposed Peter to his face. All Antioch believers that sat under Paul's ministry for maybe five, six, seven, eight, ten years knew that Peter was praying a hypocrite, and Paul calls him out on the carpet and reads his mail. Now, hopefully, you are familiar with the Gospels. 
Peter has been called out before. It was Peter who said, I will never desert you, Lord. Everybody else is going to bail out on you, but when the pressure gets tough, I'm in. I'm the rock. And Jesus said, oh, you are. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you something, Peter. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. Not I. We know the story. A little slave girl said, aren't you a Galilean also? And he denied it right in front of the Savior's eyes. And we know what happened to Rooster Crowed. And according to Luke, he wept bitterly. There's another time in the Gospel stories that Peter failed. And as when Jesus was going to the cross, he told all his disciples that I must go up to Jerusalem and die at the hands of the elders and the Pharisees and the scribes. And Peter said, never let it be. God forbid. And Jesus turned around and looked right at him and said, get behind me, Satan. For you have the things of man in mind and not the things of God. He wasn't talking to Satan. He was talking to Peter. Satan wasn't in Peter. Satan just means adversary. And he looked behind Peter and said, Peter, you're being an adversary to me. I have to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. But you are thinking about the things of man and not the things of God because the way God sees it is not made the way man sees it. Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. The gospel is God's idea. It is not man's. But guess what Peter's doing again? He has man's concerns at stake, not God's. It's God's concern that Jews and Gentiles eat together. But there were certain men that were saying, don't do it. And he caves under pressure again. This is, if you understand New Testament theology, if you're familiar with the scriptures, this is unprecedented. This is as shameful as it, this is as close as you can get to Judas. This is it. That's bad. That's real bad. His hand is caught in the cookie jar. He ate freely and conversed freely. He ate all his meals with the Gentile brothers. Then as soon as certainly certain men allegedly sent from James came down from Jerusalem with their self-righteous attitudes of high and mighty, Peter out of fear and timidity caves under the pressure and holds himself aloof. This would be bad enough, but his timidity leads to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy now does what it does best. It infects other people. Even Barnabas and the other Jews. Barnabas was was Paul's right-hand man. But they're all being swayed into the hypocrisy thing. The, the stream, the tide is taking them all out into the ocean of hypocrisy. They're all caving under pressure. Two, three, four men come down from Jerusalem and everything's caving under pressure. They don't have no backbone at all to stand up. Except Paul. And stand up he does. And he fights for the truth. He says in verse 14, some of my reading will be out of the New Living Translation because it really nails it. I'll paraphrase a little bit. Paul says this, but when I saw, and I'm glad Paul saw, that Peter was not straightforward with the truth, 
He rose to the occasion and said to Peter in the presence of them all in open shame and rebuke, If you, being a Jew, by birth, have discarded, this is what it means, the New, the New Living Translation really nails it. Since you, Peter, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile by faith in Christ, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles fo follow the Jewish traditions? You don't even follow them. You're a hypocrite. You know it doesn't save you. Why are you putting it on them for? Paul is saying, you know it doesn't work, Peter. Those laws failed us all our life. It never gave us peace. It never gave us hope. It never, never gave us self-control over sin. Why do you want these gentiles? They love Jesus already. They love God already. Why are you making them do this? The gospel's already in their heart. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They love God now. Verse 15. The conversation goes on. And Paul reminds Peter of their common heritage. He's saying, we ourselves, Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We're, we're Jewish sinners. We're not Gentile sinners. In verse 16, Paul reminds Peter of their common need as Jews. He says this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We also, who are Jews, you, Peter, you walked with the, the, the Son. You saw Him face to face. You were there at the empty tomb. You saw Him in the resurrection. But you also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, in order to be saved by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That verse of Scripture started the Protestant Reformation. It, it set men's hearts on fire. They were like, indulgences, I don't have to, indulgences? It's mad. And all of a sudden, it was just faith in Christ, like childlike faith. They left the fields and they left the bars and they, and they flocked into the churches to hear the gospel. They flocked. They tore out the confessionals, they tore down the altars, they took out the statues, and all they did was put in the pulpit and preach the gospel. And the Reformation started, and Europe was set on fire for Jesus. They loved Jesus. Verse 17 and 18. In these two verses, Paul is addressing a common misconception about the Christian message. It goes like this. In one shape, form, or another, should I continue to sin that grace may increase? Doesn't this salvation in Jesus, doesn't it produce a moral irresponsibility? I've heard that. I thought that at one time. Just to believe in Jesus, then eat and drink for tomorrow we don't. It's a common misconception. It's a real one. Surely, you're opening up the kingdom to willful sinners and spiritual deadbeats and all the riffraff of the world are going to come in and claim faith in Jesus and, and live like sinners. 
If you preach that, you have to preach circumcision. You have to preach the law of Moses. You have to give them regulations. You have to give them stipulations. You have to have some kind of fine print around here. Otherwise, who's going to live for Jesus? <laughs> they didn't know that a greater love was coming into the world. A love for God and not for sin. Verse 19 says this. I'll read it in the New Living Translation. Paul says this, But when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all the requirements and pleasing God through the law so that I might live for God. But how do you live for God without the law? How do you live for God without regulations? How do you live for God without Moses and circumcision? How, how do you live for God without people watching over you all the time and censoring your life and throwing cold water on you and telling you don't do this and don't do that and this is what you're supposed How do you live for God if you've thrown away all religion? Paul gives the answer. I have been crucified with Christ. You live by dying with Christ. This is one of the most profound paradoxes. All paradoxes are profound. You live for God by dying with Christ. You don't trust in yourself anymore. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not going to look to Moses anymore. I'm going to look to the cross. That's where my salvation is. That's where my gratitude is. That's where my hope is. That's where my peace is. I'm not going to look at commandments no more. I'm not going to look what Moses said. I'm going to study and know what Christ has done on my behalf. I'm crucified with Christ. Paul doesn't no longer live. You and I don't no longer live. I don't no longer live. I live for Christ because Christ always lives in us. That's how you live for God apart from the law. That's how you live for God apart from re uh, religious works. You don't need commandments because God is the commandment of love. He puts it in our heart. Paul will expound on this in the fifth and the sixth chapters of this book. He calls it the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those who trust in the Son receive the Spirit as the promised gift. When a man truly closes his eye or a woman closes their eyes and somewhere in their life, like Paul says, I was crucified on one day on the road to Damascus. I saw Jesus my Savior and I realized I was running my life in vain, that all my good works led to nothing but persecuting and hating other people. But now, my love for Jesus has set me free from hate. It has set me free from fornicating. It has set me free from drunkenness. It has set me free from thievery. It has set me free from covetousness. It has set me free from being critical. It has set me free from being judgmental. It has set me free from being prejudiced. It has set me free. I feel like Jesus is living his life in me. That's how you live for God. Amen. As soon as people hand you regulations, you're down. Because right. you're, you're looking down, you're not looking up. Religion is this. You trust in Christ. You truly, really know you're a sinner. And that Christ really died for you. If you know that truth and accept that. And you come in and you're water baptized and you follow Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. 
You don't need to be censored anymore. You don't need a ruling class of some kind of ecclesiastical, self-authoritative people telling you how to live. You'll want to live for God. You'll want to. That's Christianity. That's the new covenant. God puts his law favorably in our heart. We live for the Lord because why? We love him because why? He first loved us. All it is is cause and, refl uh, 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 cause and effect. Because you love me, because he died for me, because he rose again for me, the effect is I will live for you. That's it. I don't need the pastor following me around. I don't need mommy and daddy following me around. We're not infants immature, in, in, immature anymore. We come to a full adult and we have the cry of Abba Father in us. Wherever I go, I have to filter out every temptation. I have to filter out every weaknesses for what Christ has done for me. That's just part of maturing. Young Christians might not grasp that right away. But you'll get there. Be free. Guess what? You're free to make all the mistakes you want. You are. You think there's no Christian that ever abused, didn't abuse grace? You think there's not one Christian that ever walked and said, I know God's going to forgive me. Listen, if you play that card too much, God will be knocking on your door one day. Am I right or wrong? It doesn't give us a license to sin. It gives us freedom to live for God without rules and regulations. Please understand something as I step into application. And I'll close with these things. To that question in verse 17 and 18, how does a man live without the law? I'm going to read those two verses in it is a built-in safeguard. Listen to Peter and I'll give you a proper understanding. 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, that means I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I'm born again, that's what he means, we would be found to be sinners means I'm saying I love Jesus, but I'm still living in sin year in and year out. Nothing has changed. I'm still living as a drunk. I'm still living as this. I'm still cussing. I'm still swearing. I'm still hating. I'm still present. I'm still judgmental. I'm still... Every, nothing's changed in my life. He's saying this. Then I'm a servant for sin. Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down when I repented, I repented of my old self. I repented I was a sinner. I proved myself a transgressor. Understand this. A man reaps what he sows. You can say Jesus is the Lord for the rest of your life. If you're not living it, you're not saved. Amen. And that's what Paul says. I don't have to as a pastor run around and see what you did Friday night. Not my job. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will tell you. Because I might see you doing something. You might see me doing something. I go out with my wife on... Friday night, so I just want you to know. <laughs> but understand something. You might see us doing something on Friday, but you might not be there Saturday morning when our eyes are filled with brokenness and contriteness because we sinned against God who loves us. Usually not there to see the repentance and the brokenness that all true Christians feel when you wake up one day and say, God, how can you have mercy on me? How can you have mercy? How can you continue to forgive me? But he does. And there's nothing anybody in the world can do to change it. He does. 
That's the gospel. Please understand that. Peter, we want to say, Peter, are you kidding me? How do you cave under this pressure? You gotta be joking me. You're Peter. You walked on water for three or four steps. You healed the sick. You raised the dead. You saw Jesus. You saw the empty tomb. You, you saw the nail-scarred hands. You, you were there at the resurrection. At the, you were there when you ascended into the clouds. How in the world could you have caved under pressure? But then again, what Christian doesn't cave under peer contemporary pressure? How many people are a good witness at Christmas and everybody's talking about Santa Claus and they don't even talk about Jesus? Have you stood up and said, let me talk to you about what Christmas is all about? How about Easter and Good Friday when everybody's going to and fro? But for my family, it was just time to get drunk. No one was talking about Jesus. No one's talking about the death of Christ. No one's talking about the resurrection of Christ. How many times were you in a conversation that went the wrong way and you didn't say nothing because you thought people were scared what they might think of you? How many times did you not want to open up your Bible on the train because you were ashamed? How many times did you not even carry your Bible? How many people don't even study their Bible? Because someone might see them. Stop. To blame Peter? Our life is filled with timidity. We're constantly walking around with our, our Christian tail between our legs. I hope they don't know I'm born again. I hope they don't know I read the Bible. What, they, they see me singing silly songs. Well, what are people going to say about me? Oh. Christians do it all the time. So don't throw a stone at Peter. Whatever you do. Hypocrisy kills and misleads others. It's never isolated. Peter's timidity led to hypocrisy, which led to Barnabas and all the other Jews of good standing to play the hypocrite themselves. Please understand something. Hypocrisy is bad, but in a Christian, it's worse. And in a Christian leader, it's even worse. People watch. Actions speak louder than words. Understand something about the whole thing we said here, despite that's going on? Peter never convinced the other people to follow him. They followed him by sight. Be careful how you live. If you're a Christian man, a Christian husband, a Christian, be careful how you live on the job. Be careful how people see how you live. Most likely I'll have to preach on this text again next week. One other thing, certain men that, that's all it takes, these certain men that came down from Jerusalem, understand something. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you're going to live like a Christian, live with sincere Christians. Alright? Understand what sincerity is. Be careful who's speaking into your life. Truly be careful. Be extra, extra careful. And I just preach one of the longest messages of my life. I will end because we, my wife has given me the... I know, that's the communion sign. Hurry up.